0: Shack Baggley. Shack, Bagley. Shack, Bagley. Shack Bagley. Hello and welcome to Shack Bagley, an old Lincolnshire adjective to describe absolutely anything loose and disorderly, which sums up this Lancashire lass quite nicely. My name is Katie Johnson and in a moment we'll be joined by the first of my guests which include a baker from series A to the Great British Bake Off, an artist with a few tips on drawing food and if like me you love a chopping board we meet a former chef who now devotes his time to making them. First though, because we're on series 2, episode 6, here are a few things with the same number. Men shaved in one minute by champion barber Robert Hardy in 1909. Ways Shakespeare, spelt Shakespeare and points for a cue in Portuguese Scrabble. Hope you've had a good week, been a busy one this end with Glyn and I working away in Wales. Stayed at a lovely hotel, uh, not sure how, but we ended up in the bridal suite <laughs> and there was a bath that took centre stage in the room, it was just there, you walked in the door, the bed uh, was a full poster bed as well I must tell you, And then the four-poster bed was ahead of you when you walked into the room and the bath was on a raised plinth right in the middle, Um, but with two chairs (laughs) on the side of it as if for an audience. Anyway, came in handy when I wanted to fill the kettle whilst Glyn was in the shower. It was Cowbridge Food Festival we were at, not far from Cardiff in South Wales, and that's where I met Martin from Richkins Woodcraft, who was there selling his beautiful handmade chopping boards and serving platters. Martin, a chef for over 25 years, working mostly in hotels in Cardiff, in London and Dublin, struggled to find boards he wanted to use, so made them himself, and now that hobby is his full-time occupation. Looking at his wares, I have to say I was initially drawn to the pieces in oak; they were beautiful, but as was the olive wood too that he had on display. So where had that come from?
1: From a gentleman who imports from olive farms around the world. So once a tree stops producing fruits, he buys the roots, the trunk, everything, brings it to the UK and processes. I love I do where I can work with British hardwoods, mainly Welsh woods from the two timber mills I use in either side of Cardiff. But the olive wood is lovely in the boards and the grains, patination in there. It sells really well and people love it, and it's lovely wood to work with as well. But like where possible for a lot of the bespoke stuff, we'll do out of Welsh woods, so oaks and ash and stuff, beech and uh, alder. We use quite a lot. So
0: thinking about it, though, the olive trees—if they've stopped fruiting, they must be old. So the wood that you're working could be hundreds of years old.
1: Easily, yeah. Anywhere, like I say, the, they say the minimum they produce fruits for is 50 years, but some of the trees could be three, four, five hundred years old. You, you never know. And some of the grain patternations in the olive wood, like with the British woods where we get the rings, you can count out the rings once you do a cross slice. It's a little bit harder with the olive wood because the grain is all over the place. Uh, but sometimes if you can get a log slice of olive, you can count out you know, and work out where the rings are going. They're not perfectly symmetrical like the British trees are. So sometimes, yeah, you can date the wood, depending um, if I can get it as a slice, we can then date how some of the older wood is. But yeah, like I say, olive trees can go for mm. hundreds of years. So and like I say, some of the olive farmers, um, they've been established for generations as well going back. So especially in Cyprus, Tunisia, a lot of the farms are handed down through the generations. So some of the trees have been there for a long time. And like I say it's a shame, you know, the trees have to come down because they've stopped producing fruits but for as a commercial side for the business you know they do remove the tree and replant and so we have a little bit of traceability with the olive wood of where it's from and the gentleman i use in Gloucester who runs a business doing this he has good relationships with them so you know he, he knows he's not getting anything that's just been felled for the sake of felling and then same with the the oaks we use. Um, so, again, you know, I like to know the traceability. Same with cooking, same with chefing. People like to know the history of where the oak is from. So, we know it's come from usk and it's come from a fallen oak that's come down. Um, I haven't got any here, but I had some um, sequoia that was um, come from the Celtic manor. So, you know, it's finding the history behind the wood. And, you know, every tree's got a story to tell, I think.
0: When you get it then, you get it in not a raw state, I suppose, because it's already been, as you say, air-dried.
1: Yeah, um, so I'll buy from the timber mills, so they'll plank them and then stack them and um, air-dry them mostly. The olive wood gets kiln-dried because it takes uh, quite a while for the olive to dry, but for the British woods, um, they're all air-dried. And some of them, the general rule of thumb is an inch thick of wood is a year's worth of drying. So some of like the big chopping block there that's three inches thick you know that's probably been air dry for a minimum three years and it depends on our temperature our climates as we all know with the, the weather's up and down at the moment with climate change so like say if there's a very wet summer and winter then the woods will take longer to dry because the wood is naturally drawing in moisture all the time so the wood reacts to its surroundings as well so the beauty of wood you can never it's never completely 100 percent stable <laughs> well, a bit like us really yes yes we're all up and down
0: so you've got your bit of wood what you end up with is governed by the size of the plank I'm guessing yes. so that beautiful thing there you haven't done a lot with her I suppose it's, it talks to you I, I guess
1: yeah I kind of look when I look at the planks I look at what I can get from it so we've got a board there it's got a lovely uh, like a knot hole in there with a the handle which we'll leave in you know um, I like to work with what we've got on the wood and uh, like say yeah kind of when I'm selecting the woods that I want to use I'm looking at you know what can I make from that what you know I don't like wasting wood, same with food. You know, I try and utilize every part of it because for me it's profit as well. I need to maximize every little piece. So um, a small bit that maybe an off cut may turn into an egg cup. Even my wood chippings I bag up and sell for barbecue smoking.
0: So you've got your bit of wood, Talk us through the process because it, it's all already there for you. You just have to create something from it.
1: Yeah. So, like I say, we uh, it's all been air dried and seasoned. So um, we call it seasoned wood. So you need the moisture to be around about the fifteen to sixteen percent moisture. That's kind of seen as stable wood. So if it goes too dry, then it'd be too dry to work with. It'll just sand and it'll just disappear in front of you. If it's too wet, then it's going to move when it goes into an environment. So if we took that big block and it hadn't been seasoned, put it into a kitchen, it would maybe, once it starts drying, it could crack, it could move. So we kind of get to that point, you know, you need the moisture to be kind of right in the wood. Then it's just a process and depending on some of them, we need to flatten. So we'll have a thickness planer, we'll put it through and that'll take the flat edge on it. And then if we can't fit it through the thickness planer, we'll use a router sled and uh, get a flat edge on it. And then it's a lot of sanding, sanding, sanding all down through the grit. So between each grit, of sanding you wet the board and this lifts the grain back up uh, so when you do the next sanding it gets really smooth so we only really take them down to about 150 grit of sanding you can go to thousands of grit and it will be really fine By fine, with the oils and the wax don't permeate as well once you get a very smooth surface so you need about 150 180 grits of sanding level and it will be very smooth but we're using the water technique this will lift the bu- the grain and it gets it really smooth so it feels like it's been sanded lots but You you saw a lot of process of sanding. Sanding's a big part of the job. And and then it'll be dipped in the oil. Uh, We use a food safe oil, um, butcher's block oil that we use. Um, I've got a big metal sink that we dip that in. And then once it's dried, it comes out of there after about 48 hours. It goes in only for about 20 minutes in the oil. That just allows the wood to suck up as much oil as it can hold. And then we leave it dry for 48 hours. Then we use our beeswax and mineral oil mix that we get from... uh, We get raw beeswax from Liz Vane from Nature's Little Helpers then we'll wax them they have a couple of coats of wax and then like say i'm here i normally sit and wax them through the day as well with the sunlight and stuff because you've got to think wood is just constantly trying to dry out so it's
0: (laughs) so we've got it we're taking it home quick tip then for us with chopping boards cutting boards how often do we beeswax do we oil what do we do
1: as much as possible really like say i'm probably my own worst enemy because i only do mine like maybe once a month and i've got access to the wax and uh, knowledge so, like I say, it's when you've used them, um, normally, worst thing is people dishwasher them or submerge them in water and then don't dry them properly. So it has gone through the dishwasher. It's not the end of the world, but you need to ensure that it gets dried properly. What I normally do is wash up liquid onto the board or onto a scourer, scrub it in depending on, you know, what you've used them for. Um, leave that for a few minutes. Use an antibacterial one. Just allow that to work for a minute or two. Then uh, sponge it off, wipe it off, dry it as best you can with a cloth and a towel try and stand them up to air dry them, and then add a little bit of the wax on. Give it 20 minutes, then buff it with a clean cloth. And it'll just keep the wood levels moisture, the moisture level in the wood correctly. So yeah. And the wood will tell you if it gets to a point where it's not absorbing any oil or the wax, then the wood is moisturized to where it needs to be. So the more you do it, the better.
0: Thank you to Martin from Richkin Woodcrafts. Have to admit, I was very tempted by the three inch oak chopping board mentioned, but Glyn gave me the look You know, the one that said, uh, no more. The last time that happened, it was my cow collection when we first moved in together. Anyway, I'll put Martin's details on Shat Bagley's Instagram and Facebook pages so you can see examples of his work. Time for our second guest and an equally talented individual. Anne Wallace is an artist who lives in Worcestershire who seems to be able to create absolutely anything she looks at into a work of art. With a BA honours in 3D glass and ceramics, and a former arts director at a high school in Yorkshire, and teaching art and design for many years, I called into her studio the other day for a little inspiration. At the moment, I'm looking at some beetroot. Now I can see beetroot, I can see leaves, and I can see this sort of um the heart shape at the bottom. But as an artist, what are you saying?
2: Whenever I look at anything, it doesn't matter what it is, I just see shapes and tonal values, and that's it. And then the texture. Because the challenge of art is actually getting that illusion of something 3D on a 2D plane, on a piece of paper. So you're looking for the shape, you're looking at the tonal contrasts, you're looking for any texture that he's trying to suggest. So that's why I love drawing everything, because everything's got a challenge to it.
0: i am known you for doing animals, mostly, Mm. but I know you do portraits. Mm. I've never seen you do food. So where is it in the scale of things? Is it something you're not that interested in or it's not a challenge?
2: It's something I'm interested in, but I'm interested in everything. I'm a jack of all, so I love drawing anything. Um, The reason why I've got drawings of beetroot and fruit and that sort of thing is because it obviously fits very nicely with still life. So when people come and do a still life course with me, then I can set up something that's got some organic shapes in. Because the very forgiving thing about fruit and vegetables generally is they're all different shapes. Mm. So unlike a portrait of a specific person which is obviously very tight and it needs to look like that person you can get away with something being not quite the right shape and it's still a carrot or a beetroot or whatever yeah. you're looking at so there's a little bit of give with something that's more organic as well that's why i to teach it
0: because it's a bit cliche when you say a bowl of fruit but I, if anyone said oh I'm going to do still life and do they would have a bowl of fruit.
2: Well, no, it is a bit cliche. (laughs) Sorry, but it is. When I do Still Life, I tend to set it up with a theme. So it's like... I might do like a breakfast so i'll have the cups and saucers, croissant uh, on a plate uh, with the maybe the uh, you know you're having cheese with it or jam with it or whatever so i'll have the whole setup so it tends to be i like to do if i do still life it's like a scene a moment in time just before we eat breakfast or just before we have wow. our coffee and cake or something like that so then it pulls it all together a bowl of fruit does remind me a little bit of when i was at school mm. you know and the teacher bless them was probably under pressure and didn't have a lot of time and thought Go and get some fruit. Have a go at drawing some fruit because there, having a go at anything is always good for your drawing skills, isn't it? But yeah, you can make it so much more. Um, you know, you can you can enlarge the size of the fruit so it doesn't it doesn't look like a piece of fruit anymore. It's like a giant sculpture. You can play around with size. You can play around with zooming in, zooming out. I love to zoom in on things and look at the little minutiae detail and see all the textures and shapes within that,
0: like a raspberry with the little hairs yes. and the. Bumps, I suppose. Strawberries, for one to a better, yeah.
2: even the surface of a purr compared to the surface of an apple oranges pineapples you know there's loads and it's all in my head it's all shapes and it's all a massive challenge to get that pattern that nature's put in place right and of course it's not always nature you know drawing cakes that people have made you know getting the shapes getting the getting the person to be able to look at it and think oh i could just take a bite of that that's the ideal anyway
0: So if you were to do a cake, so let's stay with a cake thing, would you you go with a pencil drawing or would you want the colours in that? Because for cakes it's very visual, isn't it? Mm. So to be sort of black and white wouldn't be as interesting? Um
2: it depends it's horses for courses isn't it yes i mean obviously it was like bright pink icing and sprinkles and all that then you think oh let's capture all of that so yeah but there's ways of doing it i mean you could just do it in pencil and then you could go over it with a watercolor wash or something like that so if i'm doing something and it's well if it's for a commission and to be honest with you i've never been commissioned to do fruit or cakes or anything like that but i'm open for it if anybody's up for it uh but if it's a commission then i'd like to draw it in pencil first anyway and just get my head used to the shape and think about because if I can get the texture in a pencil I can get it in a colored pencil and I can get it in a in a, in a paintbrush because it's knowing how to get that texture and how to suggest that that oozing shiny nature of the icing running over the edge or whatever it is. Mm.
0: Folk love to take pictures of their bakes and because it's everywhere on social media so what a wonderful idea to maybe capture it then in a painting or a drawing. With baking you have to be technical, with art you have to be technical
2: Oh, yeah, ever so. I mean, if you're going into colour, then colour mixing, uh, it's all about the material you're using, what technique you're going to use for it. So completely different drawing with a pencil than drawing with a pen, because you can't rub it out, then drawing with a pen and ink, because you're adding some colour and some tonal values to it, and then what kind of ink are you using, or are using watercolour? So within each genre of technique, there's a different way of approaching a subject, like a cake or something like that. But obviously, you'd look at the photo and you In in my head, I'd work out which material would work best for it.
0: And you'd have to kind of measure a little bit, wouldn't you, to start off? You couldn't just go free. Well, you could go freehand. But if someone was starting off, I say someone, me, what would you do?
2: Oh, yeah, basically sit down, look at it, measure it, have your rubber there, rub it out as many times as you need to. Don't be pressurised into getting it done in five seconds. It's going to take time. Anything that's worth doing will take time.
0: So talented is Anne, incredibly patient, as it's Anne who's been teaching me to draw and more recently paint. If you've been following Shaq Bagley, and thank you ever so much, you need a medal. It was Anne's class that I did the painting of Harvey. Again, I'll pop Anne's information on Shaq Bagley's social media so you can see for yourself how talented she is. A couple of mentions. Hi to J.R. Heike Baker Bear, who loved hearing from Terry Hartill last week. As did Amy Barlow Jazz. Brendan says what a truly fascinating man, wasn't he just? And Jerry, who's now going to look at flatback furniture with a new eye. Hi to Judy, to Terry, to Sarah, to Laura and Emma and Lisa. Thank you so much, Lisa kindly left a review. Also heard from a lovely lady from Sweden, who's about to take a UK citizens test. She's lived here since the mid-90s, I think she said. So I thought I'd ask what sort of questions they come up with. As apparently there's sample ones on, online. Uh, well, I can't stay, as one of them is where does the phrase Beyond the Pale originate? I know, I ain't a clue either. Time to talk Bake Off, and a contestant from Series 8, James Hillary. It was the first time he and I have met, albeit via a laptop. Hey, how you doing? Oh, you've got a posh background. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a blurred office because i'm in my messy home office oh <laughs> is it one of those backgrounds that can change wherever you are in the world uh yeah
3: i think you can i normally just go for fuzzy but i could be on a beach somewhere nice
2: oh
0: okay how easy is it to do that i'm intrigued now go on put it on a beach
3: oh oh, now you now you're testing me um <laughs> let me see if I can... oh yeah there we go oh <laughs> and, uh...
0: Oh, I say, we've had nice weather in the UK, but not as nice as where you are at the moment. You've even got a breeze in the palm tree. Yeah,
3: I was going to say, it's a lot colder than that image shows.
0: <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Nice to meet you. Yeah, oh, we've, and got, you. we've gone back to a fuzzy office now. You obviously feel more comfortable <laughs> with that one.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> now, I was trying to work out it was... 2017, I think, and 2020. Yep. Is that right? You were on? Yeah, that's
3: right. Yeah, we were the first year on Channel 4. Oh, gosh. Uh, which was a, a unique experience because we all auditioned thinking we were going to be on BBC and it was going to be Mary Berry, Mel and Sue, but we didn't hear to the last minute, literally, um, when it was announced in the press. So oh. It must have been announced just before we started filming. So we only had like a week or two's notice to get a head around it. Um oh or oh, before they announced the um mm. that it was moving. Um so yeah, we it was very last minute and obviously we we're all nervous because everyone loved the BBC and there was lots of oh, we're not gonna watch it because it won't be the same and but luckily they, they cast it really well. Sandy Toxfic was an absolute jem she was just so lovely she gave everyone a big hug in the morning and then Noel was crazy he was he, he, the yin and yang was brilliant between mm-hmm. them
0: i was going to ask about sandy because I, I i think she's wonderful and i had read somewhere that she used to hug you every morning but that that was right every single one of you had an individual hug
3: yeah uh, in the morning we'll be in there early setting up um sort of making sure we got all our ingredients we would be in the tent kind of six in the morning And Sandy would always come in and have a little chat with everyone. She was also filming QI at the same time. And I've always loved her um, in QI, all the way back to number 73 when I was a child.
0: Me too. Um,
3: So so it was lovely. She she would tell you about her week, make sure your nerves were settled. She was just absolutely, she was wonderful. She was like the
0: temp mum for us. Yeah. It's interesting you say at six o'clock in the morning. I don't think folk realise the hours that you have to put in so you'd be there say at six o'clock so you probably left the hotel at five and then what time would you leave on an on i say a normal recording day but on a saturday night how long would you be there for do you think
3: Uh, on the first couple of weeks because there's so many people in the bakers in the tent we were leaving i think sometimes it was sort of nine o'clock at night (sighs) getting back to your hotel for a meal about ten. One of the things I didn't realise, which is daft, being a big fan of the show, was that there's lots of breaks in television. So we've obviously done our whatever bake uh, we were doing and everywhere is carnage. And you forget that they have to tidy it all up for telly for the nice pretty shots of you staring at your your finished (laughs) article. And it all takes a lot of time and then all the individual little interviews in between. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it is a really long day and that's... Sort of all the stuff outside of just the the concentrated baking periods mm. but such a brilliant experience It was I, I loved all the behind the scenes i get and see how they filmed it because there's probably 25 30 40 cameramen sound guys producers story producers all around you mm. which you never see on the telly you always kind of you've got your cake you ducking under a camera and working yeah. out when you've got to be quiet because paul and prue are about to ask someone a question and, yeah No laughing in the background (laughs) at at certain points.
0: And also, you've got to wear the same outfit the whole time.
3: (laughs) Yeah. That's okay in the first bit of filming. They they start filming around this time of year, so it's quite cold in the tent. But once you hit the the more warmer days, the the temperature goes up Mm -hmm. into the 80s, 90s um and you are sweltering so being in the same outfit for two days by the second day you can't wait to uh, get changed before you head home it's
0: a bit fresh i think simon cowell had the right idea and just wore white t shirts so you could have at least change then couldn't you if you'd done what he did <laughs>
3: exactly yeah
0: now i know very long days because at the moment we're on the road with what's cooking so it's standing all day and in and in a, in a field in a tent of course you had Poorly back, and you've recently been diagnosed with. Now, you'll have to help me with the pronunciation. Is it an, ankylase? What's it? Ankylosin
3: spondylitis.
0: Oof. Now, had you, yes. you must have had that when you were in the tent, James. So you must have been in quite a lot of pain.
3: Yeah, so it was actually the diagnosis of that condition that got me to the tent, bizarrely. Ah, okay. So I, I was diagnosed in, um, I was training for the London Marathon in 2012. And I was having a lot of back pain and fatigue that was more than I should have experienced for the amount of training I was doing. So I went to the doctors, they, they diagnosed me. It's a form of inflammatory arthritis, predominantly in the spine. Mm. And one of the bits of, worst bits of advice I was given was you shouldn't run again. So I stopped running and that used to be my stress reliever from the, your day-to-day work. So then I fell back in love with baking. Uh, I always used to bake with my father when I was young. So I was—I got back to baking for a couple of years and I, I've always loved the Great British Bake Off and I i could be a little bit quietly competitive. I thought <laughs> I could probably do that. So I i applied and I had to apply two or I think it was three times and I got on on the third time. Um, so it was the diagnosis that got me there. But the long days of standing, it did. It certainly sunk in at times I, I was in a lot of pain i used to it was good because there's plenty of room that i could stretch and make sure i, I was moving mm. a lot and i always remember one day generally paul prue and the team come through the front of the tent to say hello and i was at, i was in the back right corner or back left corner of the tent if you're looking into the tent where the starburst is and i was doing my stretches so i was bending down touching my toes as paul coming from behind <laughs> The starburst and his first view was <laughs> my derriere pointing <laughs> up in the air I was like morning <laughs> uh, um, but yeah it's it was one of those things that i i had coping strategies to make sure i was moving and uh, mm. uh, and keeping um flexible
0: oh that was an interesting one where the, the two were linked but also when you went on to bake off it kind of reignited or, or lit i don't know whether it was already there your love for baking bread
3: yeah, so I, I was never particularly good at bread. Anyone who goes on the show knows like bread week for Paul. Mm. You don't want to let him down. So leading up to be going on the show, I started to make breads and that. But on our series, um, we had some really good sourdough bread makers and bread makers. Yanni uh, and Chris on our show were such avid breadheads that I really got into it. So. I started the journey before the show, but I learned so much off of those guys on the show that I did. That's probably my preferred thing to bake now. I've moved away from sweet cakes and that, but sort of breads and uh, croissants and that sort of thing uh-huh. is really where, I, where my passion lies. Yeah. Now.
0: Do you still have your day job, James, or have you been able to use baking as your way forward? Because I know, is it small holding with a cafe was your long term aim?
3: Yeah, I'd I still love to get there. Uh, I've still got the day job, so I'm still working as a project manager in the city. But I've used the opportunity to do as much baking outside of my day job as possible. So for a couple of years, I was baking for a local small sort of eco refill shop that had a little coffee counter. So I was making pastries for them yeah. and doing things like food festivals uh, and I was writing for a magazine. So... I've always kept it going on the side, but I've never made that full leap. Mm. I think working in the city in London, it's uh, hard. It's really hard to make that leap um, because mm. it, it's a tough life. You, as you probably know, sort of the, the circuits of um, food festivals uh, and trying to maintain that being current and, mm. and, and getting the business and making sure that you, you're in a permanent job. People like Stephen have done a brilliant job of uh, Stephen Carter Bailey of making a living from it, and, and and Liam did the best out of our year. I think he did absolutely phenomenally. Right time, brilliant personality, mm. uh, and you... been on pretty much every Bake Off version. Now,
0: <laughs> <laughs> are you still in touch as a as a group?
3: Not so much as we used to be. It's what five years on almost now, isn't it? We still chat and meet up. So. Uh, Steve and I saw a few months ago at uh, the Great Taste Awards uh, doing some judging there. Yanni, we still meet up and grab a dinner every now and again. And also, I I see Kim Joy. She had a book launch the other day, so you end up bumping into a lot more of Bakers. And it becomes a bigger Bake Off family, not just your series. You end up making friends across the series, which I think is lovely.
0: And I always like to ask Bakers who have been on if we were to pluck you from your year and pop you in any other year, before or after, which one would it be? It would have been the
3: first lockdown year. Because of the way that that was filmed, that it was a level up for everyone. So I, I think I went on quite naively because people like Ruby and Martha have been doing degrees while they were on the show. I thought, oh, that's OK. And I was working full time. So I was trying to fit in practising around a full time job, whereas if I could have been... In the tent and had a week's practice. Mm. I think the outcome could have been slightly different. So I think that that levels it. It's the way they filmed the uh, the US version as well. But also, it's a, a big commitment to give up that that time to mm. to fully commit to moving into a hotel for that long.
0: Well, especially because you have a young family.
3: They were young then. They're, they're getting a lot bigger and older now. Uh, my oldest is just getting ready to go to uni next year, which is crazy. Good grief. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm a youngest, thir- just turned 13, so they- they've grown up. And it- it's so funny looking back at the show where you could see them in the garden uh, <laughs> party bit and they-, they-, they all look so young.
0: <laughs> oh, uh, bless them, uh, yeah. It- we always say if they're getting older, so are we. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, unfortunately,
0: <laughs> you touched on the states there. You spent some time in Chicago, I believe.
3: Yeah, so I, we lived in Chicago, just me and my wife, pre-children, uh, around 1999 through to 2002. So we spent three years in Chicago, had a fantastic opportunity with the company that I work for now. And we was living downtown, so we had the perfect, we were near the lakefront, near oh. all the nice bars, near the stadium. So we had a brilliant time, worked hard and played hard. found Chicago a lovely town because it's, it's a lot more laid back than New York, it's the friendly Midwest Mm. um uh, great blues culture so we we had an absolute blast
0: i bet and we talked touched on the small holding which you would love to do do you still have your your hens james
3: (laughs) unfortunately we lost the hens not through the foxes they were stolen oh um because yeah they were our allotment which is um only a 10 minute walk um but our allotment got raided by we don't know who and gradually people's hens started to go missing.
0: oh rotten Um,
3: beggars yeah, so we've still got the allotment, me and my dad. So we still grow far too much rhubarb than probably the whole street can consume. <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, sadly, we decided after that we, were, we would give the hens a miss. It, yeah. was, it wasn't fair to them. Oh, um,
0: rotten beggars. Oh, you're just horrid because yeah. you just don't know, do you? Because, um, yeah, we had hens for about 10 years, so I know how they... Well, they become part of you, don't they? have got such characters. They've got such characters. They are, got such characters. Mm. It's. Uh,
3: People probably don't know that about chickens unless they've had them, but they are such a fun pet yes. to have, as well as uh, <laughs> having great eggs for baking. It's uh, they're just lovely to be around. They're so
0: much fun. Yeah, you mentioned dad. So is dad still with us then?
3: He is. Yep, yeah, he's uh, he's definitely getting older, but um, still see him every week. Um, he comes up the allotment, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a, my inspiration to start baking. He always used to work nights, so uh, the weekends we'd be in the kitchen cooking something, either oh. be that curry or bacon. He was terrible at bread as well, so we've had some bread disasters. But, yeah, so he's still around, and we, fortunately he lives very closely, so we uh, get to see see each other a lot. Oh,
0: that's nice. And you mentioned the eldest then wanting to head in off to uni. I hope you've done what you did with your dad and, and done some teaching. Otherwise, it'll just, be, <laughs> it'll just be beer and crisps or chips, James, otherwise. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that, that is so true. So my my eldest son is probably the least practical in the kitchen even though we've baked together for ages we've only just convinced him that he's got the skills to toast his own bagel now Um, (laughs) so so we have been um, every week we've been trying to encourage him to make meals for us and we've given him some pasta basics and he he can cook a bacon sandwich now and he'll survive just i think um, but we've, we've got a few more weeks to drum a few more recipes into it. whereas my youngest will be fine it's like uh, he's already more than happy to jump in and make whatever he fancies uh, oh, so yeah lovely. i think we spoilt the oldest
0: yeah probably so with you yeah. you're still in the kitchen then and you're still doing your baking i know on your social media you're, you're regularly putting pictures of what was that the other day was it a, the jaffa cake come what it looked yeah, a, a huge cake. Giant jaffa cake yes that was it
3: yeah so it was a good kind of 8 inch size jaffa cake. So one of the things I I've ended up doing with my uh, one of my neighbours is that they wanted to learn to bake. Her and a friend. Mm. So I said, oh, well, I'll, I'll give you some lessons. So it starts off as we'll do it a few times, and we've been there probably going for about nine months.
0: Oh wow! Um,
3: and I always ask them what they fancy making, and um, they wanted to make a giant jaffa cake. So I go away research a recipe, and then <laughs> on a Saturday morning we pop round. We have a good laugh, a good natter. It's really relaxing, and uh, we end
0: up with something to eat. So it's a win for everyone. That's lovely. So what's on this week then? This Saturday,
3: Uh, they want to do go to a more traditional sort of seventies, eighties, Black Forest Gatto type cake. So I I need to, which I'm fully in for because I love a Black Forest Gatto. So I hope it makes a resurgence after this
0: yeah very very 1970s so i'm picturing then chocolate sponge will you be putting black cherries in there today? yeah now does it go in, in the, the sponge or the the icing in, in the,
3: the icing i'll probably do like a kirsch whipped cream oh with black cherries on and then a grating of chocolate over the top with more cherries on top
0: uh-huh how high are we going james
3: uh i'm only going to go a couple of layers just because i've got a live with a, a home oven that i'm gonna to have to cook six sponges or we're gonna have to cook six sponges in so <laughs> yeah, that, that's my maximum we can only do like a, a double tier sandwich cake but uh, we'll certainly make it tasty
0: i love that so that's that keeps going and it's nine months on i love it yeah it's,
3: and it's got no sight of ending we've done cornish pasties we did pasta one day. So it, it could be quite random what they fancy making on any given day. Yeah. A steak and kidney pudding, which I hadn't had for years. So nice suet um, pastry.
0: Yeah. Um, really nice steak and kidney. Yeah, it was a good one. I, to... just, I just don't do the kidney bit, me though, James.
3: I don't eat them a lot, but they were really, I forget what kidneys they were. They weren't lamb's kidneys. They were something different, but they were really tasty.
0: All right.
3: Maybe it was a, a, a I can't remember. I'm going to have to ask him next
0: time I'm round, but he's stole the meat, so it's just like there. Yeah, we'll throw it in. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's the texture. It's that's what puts me off.
3: Yeah, mm, a, yeah. I've never been a liver yeah. fan. I must admit, I can't can't do liver, but kidneys, I'm all right with.
0: Weren't you brought up with liver? You do surprise no, me. No,
3: and my, mum and dad always used to cook it, and me and my brother wouldn't eat it. My mum, bless her, has never been the best of cooks, so it was like rubber. The uh, <laughs> The liver that we used to have so I think it it scarred us for life
0: <laughs> so you could use it as an ice hockey puck probably <laughs> <laughs> exactly yes. what a lovely man James Hillary from series A to the great British Bake Off and Black Forest Gatto oh, not had one of those for years so that's it for another week thank you for listening and see you next time right then best have a look where does the phrase beyond the pale originate oh